Augmented reveals the stories behind a new era of industrial operations where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 29 of the podcast, the topic is the automated microfactory. Our guest is Brian Matthews, CTO of Bright Machines. In this conversation, we talk about increasing the speed, scalability, and flexibility of manufacturing using an intelligent, software-driven approach. Can discrete manufacturing, that is, the production of distinct items such as electronics, automobiles, furniture, toys, smartphones, and airplanes, now achieve the same efficiencies that we have seen in the software world? What does the next decade look like? Augmented is a podcast for leaders, hosted by futurist Thron Arne Unheim, presented by Tulip.co, the frontline operations platform, and associated with MFG.works, the manufacturing upskilling community launched at the World Economic Forum. Each episode dives deep into a contemporary topic of concern across the industry and airs at 9 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time every Wednesday. Augmented. The Industry 4.0 podcast. Ryan, how are you? Doing great, Tron. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great too. I'm excited uh, to chat with you. A, a lot of things uh, happening since we uh, since we got to know each other, and uh, you gave me homework, and I've done my homework. So for the people who actually can see this, I've, re- I've read uh, the DevOps uh, handbook, and you have it too. So, so that was one part of the homework that I think I was supposed to watch a movie as well um, and, and read the book behind the movie. So there was a lot of prep for this, Brian. <laughs> I didn't think you'd actually do it. That's amazing. Good job. <laughs> well, you went to Cornell. I respect people who go to Cornell. You guys are serious people. Um, you've been swimming in that little pond there and you know, there's something magical about it, right? Uh, I enjoyed it. Yeah. A lot of good universities. There are a lot of good universities. Um, I, I wanted to just ask you straight off the the bat. You you've been in a bunch of businesses. You're deeply sort of steeped in technology, but but now you know very much working on on manufacturing. What brought you into this space? What makes you excited about the, this space? And sort of, you obviously have a tech background, but uh, not every bright person in tech saw the light about the kind of the integration of the physical and 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 uh, and the virtual uh you know as early what what is it that fascinates you with uh with this space uh, it's a lot of different technologies you know it's it's been my career in a lot of different industries um so i was trained as an electrical engineer and a lot of the manufacturing work that i do at my current company is around electronics manufacturing electronics kind of pro- uh, products and so on but my real career was built around software. Um, I was in a computer graphics company and then a CAD company for many years and doing design, you know, computer-aided design in many industries, uh, manufacturing, architecture, um, water infrastructure, you name it. Um, and then I got into uh, scanning technologies. So things like laser scanning, photogrammetry, things like that, which are measurement and computer vision kind of came in. So um, when Bright Machines uh, started out, um, I had uh, a friend who was uh, at the company and told me about it, and it really combined a lot of different things, right? Because you've got robotics, you've got manufacturing, um, but what you know I had seen about this industry is there really aren't many people who 
who bring the thread through all of these things. Because what drives manufacturing is CAD. And that turns into simulation. How do you simulate your manufacturing? And then that turns into computer graphics. How do you visualize it? And then you've got the actual uh, robotics and so on. Um, but finally, the missing link, I think, in all of this is computer vision. Um, you know, robots historically have been blind, numb, and dumb. And all three of those things can change now with new technology. You've got um, computer vision. You've got, uh, you know, sensors that can feel. And, the, you know, the, probably the coolest thing on the block now is all the machine learning stuff going on. And, and so there's a lot of companies out there that have combined A plus B. You know, you take... Uh, uh, simulation and robotics, or you take uh, machine learning and IoT, or this plus that, you know. And what I hadn't really seen is anybody who who sees how you really have to string all these things together. So you you really need people who have a background in CAD and how you take design intent out, and how do you marry that up to simulation and computer graphics and material science and and robotics and and really bring it all together into a system. And that's really what excited me about this company and this industry is, is that we're finally, with Industry 4.0 and so on, we're finally at the, at the point where we can do some of these things. Yes, and, and that's where I want to get in a second. But before we get there, I, I have to bring this out because not only did I do my homework on the DevOps, but uh, your favorite robot is TARS. And, and there's a story behind this because the movie Interstellar obviously has, has TARS you're not just a little bit fascinated with robotics and these kind of infrastructures. You 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 really kind of live them. What what was it about TARS that brought your that got your attention? Uh, it's not incremental thinking. So if you think of every robot that you've seen in every Hollywood film, you know they all kind of follow the same paradigm of looking techy and so on. TARS was a complete rethink of what a robot is and how it works. Um, and it was really functional for a movie to come up with that kind of a design. This is a, a, a robot that was made to be a military robot, you know, tough as nails. Um, and the way that it articulates, the way that it moves, uh, very, very interesting. Um, it, I, I'm not gonna spoil it, but it's not like any other robot that you've seen. And there's some really good ideas in how it how it actually works. now. Physically, it wouldn't work the way it works in the movie. It is a movie at the end of the day. Um, but there are some interesting ideas in how it's put together. Hmm. Well, and, and I wanted to bring that out just because you said something. You said, you know, we're finally now able to do Industry 4.0. Um, what does Industry 4.0 mean to you? It means a lot to a lot of people. It's actually not a term that is used very much in the U.S., right? Smart manufacturing has at least been the industry's term for it. Uh, but of course, in Europe and, you know, with the World Economic Forum and where the term sort of originated, it, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a bigger term. You explain it to me. How, how, what does it mean to you? You said we're finally able to do Industry 4.0. What do you, how do you explain that? Yeah, and, I, and I'm... You know, Industry 4.0, there's a lot of um, actual academic papers that define it, and I don't use those definitions. I, you know, I'm, I use the layperson. So to the layperson, you know, Industry 4.0 is just really the digitization of the whole process. And um, when I say we can finally do this, I'm really talking in, about uh, a bigger picture of, of take the concepts of Industry 4.0, which is once you've digitized something, 
it really isn't even about the digital data that's important. I mean, what is your goal at the end of the day? What are you really trying to do here? And what I think we can do now is because of digitization and these different technologies, machine learning combined with vision, combined you know, with CAD and simulation and so on, is that we can automate entire workflows. And I think that's what this is uh, really about. I mean, if I look at other industries, Salesforce doesn't sell anything. Workday doesn't hire anybody. ServiceNow doesn't fix anybody's bugs. What do these really successful companies really do? They automate the workflow of doing work. And in a way, they automate tasks. So they're uh, automating machines, but they're also automating the humans that are participating in the process of working with the machines. So this concept of automating automation, I think, is a very, very interesting concept. And that's actually where my background is. You know, while I've danced around the manufacturing industry, you know, from a CAD space and CAM and simulation and all of these other uh, parts of manufacturing, work with a lot of manufacturing companies, um, I'm not a actual manufacturing person. But where I've spent a lot of time is in cloud computing. And that, the reason why I like that DevOps handbook that, you know, there's the ad again for these guys. I don't know them personally, but, um, you know, the, the big aha in that is if you look at what happened to the cloud computing market, it's been amazing. And what did happen in the cloud computing market? I mean, that's, that's the big question. What was the change? Because if you go to United Airlines 20 years ago, you had... Uh, networking server, you had a database and you had a file server. And today in Amazon Web Services in the cloud, you have networking, you have a database and you have a file server, like nothing changed, right? But everything changed. And I think if you take a step back and look at these uh, innovations, the innovation wasn't about actually doing the work itself. You know, uh, software engineers don't write more software today than they did 20 years ago, writing Photoshop or AutoCAD or whatever. Um, where a lot of the work was, was in the tool set to automate the process of software development. And so when I look at manufacturing, I think, you know, it's the same thing. In, in software, where did the concept of Kanban come from? Where did, you know, Agile come from? Where did Just-in-Time come from? They came from manufacturing. But I feel like manufacturing stopped. And they stopped innovating along those same lines where the software industry was just like manufacturing. A Toyota Camry comes out every four years, right? And so you only do certain types of testing every four years. You only invest so much in automation. And the software industry, how often did Windows come out You know, 20 years ago? How often did Photoshop ship? It used to be every four years. But how often does it ship today? You get a new copy of you know, AutoCAD every three months. And so there's, there's something really different about how software is being manufactured versus how products are being manufactured. And I think that trajectory, if you, if you peel away at what has happened in cloud computing, what you see is there's a huge set of tools around managing the entire process and automating the process, not automating the actual work. And I think in our industry, we focused on putting screws in holes and automating that and not automating the workflow. Yeah, and that's super interesting. And, and I guess what starts to happen then uh, you know, what started with the cloud computing market also is that there were a lot of interesting roles suddenly, specialist roles that were available to non-computer engineers who were using these automated tools where they could actually do automated efficient things, uh, you know, even not being software engineers. And I guess some of that stuff is starting to happen finally, one would say, in, you know, in manufacturing. And 
just about time, I guess, right? Since uh, the the industry kind of inspired every other industry, and then it stopped, like you said, for a while, and and now it's very much cool again. I wanted to just bring, I guess, the interstellar metaphor back one more time, just because you what, what you told me about it was right. It's so fascinating because it's real. So. If you reflect on Industry 4.0, there are, of course, a bunch of shiny things there. There are robots, and and the trope of a robot has been around for so long. And and like in many other technologies, you know, it is quite disappointing when you actually then look at a real robot, having seen a robot in the movies, you know, many, many times. But that was one of the things you said was so fascinating with Interstellar is that uh, I guess Jonathan Nolan spent a lot of time making sure that this robot wasn't just fake, that it, everything that was happening in there was no, not only fascinating, but it was physically possible. That's true. And it wasn't just the robots. It's, uh, they actually, there's a Nobel laureate, Kip Thorne, that they, uh, was a consultant to the movie. And the physics of the movie itself are based on uh, possibility, not probability. Yeah. But yeah, if, if, you, uh, if you think into this industry, um, that ability to do things with robots is hard today. Today, you got a teach pendant, you're working in a real-time operating system with something like a structured text language. Um, If you teach a robot how to move in a certain way to a certain coordinate, um, usually that that programming is done in a vendor-specific language um, that is not a modern programming language. The user interface is quite old. A lot of the hardware companies that make that software, um, the software in some ways is an afterthought. Once you've made the hardware sale, you really don't care about that user interface. And the people who are programming robots are system integrators, right? And so uh, there isn't a lot of self-service from the end customer, the end OEM. Um, and that creates an interesting dynamic uh, there and so I think all of those things are ripe areas for change because they were the same way in in the software world. Um, you know, you used to have languages that could only run on a Mac or only run on a PC or only run on a mobile phone. You know, you had BlackBerry apps, and today you have web apps that run the same everywhere. Um, you can write app one app. You have virtualization systems. Um, you have tools that manage, think of GitHub, think of Terraform, that configure your system, that deploy your code, uh, editors and so on, debuggers. And um, when I look at the manufacturing market, I see PLCs, I see real-time operating systems, I see structured text and ladder diagrams, and I see protocols that are um, old. And so, in fact, I did a search a while ago. I was looking for a book on structured text programming. Do you know how many, if you type that into Amazon, guess how many you'll find? I have no idea. Is it? There, a, is you'll it get five, five hits. Wow. But if you look a little closer, three of them are the same book, just different editions. Oh. Okay. So <laughs> now if you type in Python, uh, what do you get? You know, and, and so this is, yeah. this is the problem. I think we're not taking advantage of all of the research that has gone into these other industries where we could apply these same exact concepts to this industry. So you call software-defined manufacturing a kind of a new trend. When, when did that start? And how, can you just line up some examples of the, uh, that particular movement? When, when did that really start? When, when software for, for real started to... Uh, because you're not just talking about having software like you know traditional MES system in, in manufacturing. What I'm understanding from your term, maybe I'm wrong, is that you're talking about this cloud-aware, sort of like low-code version of software 
and when that moved into manufacturing. Can you line up a little bit, you know, when that started to happen and, and what characterizes the kind of things that, that changes in, in the industry when, when these software yeah. layers are becoming more flexible? Right. And I think, again, this is an example of, of one where, you know, we didn't invent these concepts. Um, these are already proven elsewhere in other industries. So where do these concepts come from? Well, there's a, there's a movement called SDX, Software Defined Anything. And you can go Google that and read about SDX. But there was uh, Software Defined Radios is probably one of the first examples of this concept where, you know, you used to have an AM radio or an FM radio, and then your cell phone, there was uh, PCS and CDMA and GSM and and, you know, every time you wanted to change protocols, like the hardware physically encapsulated that modulation scheme in, in hardware. And, you know, at some point, um, there were these things called software-defined radios, where they would digitize the waveform coming off the antenna, and they would do the demodulation through mathematics, rather than a bunch of capacitors and inductors and resistors. You know, they would find... Uh, uh, do the demodulation in software. And then, you know, the cloud computing world has infrastructure as a service or platform as a service, and there's a software-defined networking, software-defined storage. And what is software-defined networking? Well, in the old days, you used to have to, if you wanted to have a secured network, you know, you used to have to physically cable this network switch to that network switch. And then Cisco and others came out with software-defined networking where you can create what's called a virtual LAN. So when I plug my printer into this port of a, of a network and I plug my IP telephone and my whatever, if I don't want those two devices to be able to talk to each other, I define that network in software instead of in the hardware. So if we t bring this into manufacturing, this is you know the, one of the big ideas is Take a conveyor. You can go out to Bosch or YJ Link or any of these guys, and they'll have a catalog of a thousand different conveyors. And the traditional way is if I'm trying to make, you know, this mouse here, I'll go uh, get a pallet, you know, that's the right size for that. And I'll go to my catalog and get the right conveyor for that product. And that'll be the cheapest way to go. But when, the, when I want to make a different product next year, uh, what do I do? I throw the conveyor away. I get a different conveyor. Um, a software-defined manufacturing approach is to get in a conveyor that's motorized, that has a shaft encoder and knows what its width is set to, and you load a recipe and it changes its shape. You know, so um, you know we've done things like uh, heat sink installers, where you know there's 250,000 different types of heat sinks on the market, right? And you can go to any number of com companies and find thousands of different grippers for your robot that can pick up heat sinks of different shapes and sizes. But why not have ones that have motors in them that it's under software control change their shape? It's going to cost you more, but you can reuse it for every future project you're ever going to have. So those are some ideas behind software-defined manufacturing. If, if you look at a Tesla or an iPhone, what, what they were compared to their predecessors was a software-first approach. It's still hardware, but the hardware isn't the thing that's meant to do the work, it's meant to be controlled. So sensors and motors and so on, it's meant to be controlled from a software first approach. And then what you were saying there is absolutely part of it, which is how do we layer on that entire workflow? So low code, no code environments. How do we do what I call um, declarative programming, um, which is uh, you don't say do step one, step two, step three, that's procedural programming. That's the way we program robots today. But if you, if you think ahead, you can be goal-oriented. Like, I want to pick the screw up from the screw presenter, and I want to put it in the heat sink hole. And why am I telling it the XYZ coordinate when the CAD file knows where the coordinate is? And the answer to that is, well, 
because what the CAD file says and what the robot actually has in front of it are always two different things. So that's where computer vision comes in. So if you have all these, so you put them all together, I shouldn't be programming robots in the first place. Things should just be doing the stuff on their own. That's a declarative approach. I declare the goal. You know, it's fantastic to to hear you explain this because I, I'm kind of getting an analog a little bit to kind of like the way that we have sort of defined 3D printing. 3D printing, you know, for some people, it's just like, oh, it's actually, you know, in their head, they had like this little printer that was, you know, printing ink. And then, of course, the concept broadens and you can start printing other material. But then if the size now starts to change, which it is, right, also, and not just materials are changing. And, you know, uh, desktop metal is now all a project or they're even printing a wood product. But anyway, what you're talking about is essentially automating the notion of a factory. So it's not that you're just necessarily printing anything, but you're, you're modularizing everything about the surroundings. To, and and to, let's to even back it. up from that, because it's even okay. the design. Right. Right. So it starts with the design digitally. And, and then you're, you're essentially modularizing the entire, I guess, the entire workflow, which is all of manufacturing. It's fascinating. So how, how does that, so what does a micro factory look like? Because right now, actually, it's micro factory, but you know, in the future, I'm assuming the size there will, will increase as well. But this notion of automating the factory and creating kind of a, a software defined factory, what does it look like today in the marketplace? I mean, you have a product in it, but what are some of the other uh, concepts out there that are starting to come on the market where you've essentially said there is a new factory available and and you know it has some of those software defined features uh, what does it look like well it's um you know a lot of if it depends on which industry you're in let's just take electronics manufacturing you're making mice or you know servers or car car parts or you know electronics in a box um and if you're in that the front of the line where you're making your printed circuit board assemblies with all the components on all that that's been highly automated for a long time because there's standardization there. You have a standard board, you have standard SMT components that go on top, and there's standardized machines that can make all that. And so that's a fairly software-defined way of manufacturing that part. But it all falls apart at final assembly and inspections, where you've got to get your plastic case and your battery and your speaker and your, you know, and you got to put it all together. Um, so that's really where the microfactory concept comes in, is the part where there's a lot of human labor now. Um, so if you look at the implementation, you go into a factory where you have things like microfactories, you're going to see cells and robotic cells. And the difference, um, it, you know, at first glance, it may look the same, but the difference is that things are very modular. So um, traditional system integrators and traditional automation professionals, um, there's a lot of customization for each uh, project. So you may choose which robot, which conveyors, which safety systems, which PLC, which everything, right? And, you know, I think, you know, our approach is to standardize a lot of that stuff. You know, if you look across all these different projects, do I really need, you know, 18 different safety systems? Do I really need that many different kinds of conveyor belts and robots and so on? And so why not make this more like Lego bricks and mm -hmm. standardize these things? And then you can have them in inventory. You can have them, you know, uh, at lower cost, at higher volumes, reusable on another project. So don't just think of building these cells for this project and, and depreciating that asset for just one project. 
Think about depreciating it into the future. It changes the whole cost dynamic, the business model. Everything changes when you think that way. So that's part of it. That's kind of the hardware. But then let's back out and say, okay, how do you program this stuff? Because what is, what's the most manual thing you can do in a factory? What's the most expensive and slowest thing? It ain't putting the screws in. The thing that often is the most manual is deploying automation. And that's very ironic that that's why people don't deploy automation. I can teach you to put a screw in a hole in five seconds. If I want to teach a robot how to put a screw in a hole, you know, that's a lot of work. Um, and that's really what we need to change. So yes, you get modular hardware, but it's really in the authoring system. How do you show intent to the machine? And this is where the low code, no code environments come in, where you can give intent in a, um, in a more graphical approach that is more self-service that maybe doesn't need as much of a system integrator. Um, or if you do need a system integrator, maybe you don't need them to continually come back to the factory for every new product revision. You can just tweak the recipes that you already have, right? But then so is we, this the death of the is this the death of the system integrator, or is it just uh, similar to kind of that? This is robots are not the death of of, of anyone. It's just a transfer of of, of different doing different skills. I mean, there's still going to be services that have to be executed. I mean, absolutely. there is some automation, but there's if you look also at tweaking. Yeah, if you look at any other, uh, so I had a friend once who said, you know, robot is what you call something before it becomes useful. After it's useful, you call it a dishwasher, or a vacuum cleaner, or a, you know something else, right? So, um, you know, if you look at ATM machines, for example, um, yep. how many tellers are there uh, working in banks today compared to before the teller machines? So, when you make something cheap through automation, you actually consume more of it. So, you're absolutely right. I don't think it's the death of system integrators. System integrator, there's always going to be the last mile. It's what's on the end of the arm of that robot, that gripper and that pallet is custom. It's custom to that product. And I don't see that. I see it being improved through software approaches and using CAD and so on, but I don't see it, you know, that's not going to change overnight. That's something that, you know, by the time I retire, we'll get some big inroads to that someday. But um, what you want to do is make the quality better, uh, allow for innovation to be cheaper and so on. And that means backing out and say, not just having this modular hardware and, and low code environments to program, but how do you, what is your entire workflow from design? You know, we've always had the person who designs the cell phone to the person who's manufacturing the cell phone, that linkage existed, but it wasn't very strong. And in some companies, I've even seen it's throw it over the wall and it's somebody else's problem. And there isn't a, there isn't a good loop there. So if you look in, uh, if we go back to the, my cloud computing example, the industry where I came out of, you know, what is the equivalent of GitHub in this industry? What is the equivalent of Terraform? What is the equivalent of ServiceNow or Jira? Um, what is the equivalent of Visual Studio? Uh, there, I really don't see it in this industry. And so if we think of software-defined manufacturing, let's not just talk about, you know, the on the robot. Let's broaden this uh, thinking all the way from the CAD designer in the design department who is deciding what kind of screws to put in the holes. And shouldn't we be using data from the factory to instruct the design itself, you know, design for manufacturing? One of the things you, you said earlier was about the standardization. And I guess you stopped short of talking about interoperability, but certainly for robotics, that's been a big issue. I know there, there are some steps forward now 
some recent announcements of uh, you know on, on among several firms to, to to work on robot interoperability, but uh, surely it's inefficient and it has been inefficient when everyone's creating, you know, everybody loves to be a platform these days, but essentially, you know, in the olden days in manufacturing, like everything was not just a platform, but, you know, there were customized factories that were like built, like you said, they were built in in stone and, and, and metal and they couldn't be changed. So not only were you locking in your own project trajectory, and so there was a reason why there was only a Toyota every four years, right? Because they actually had to retool the entire uh, factory to create something else, but you were, of course, not able to communicate across with even your suppliers or anything like that. How is all of that now slowly changing with with this new paradigm? Because there surely is still the incentive to try to lock in some aspect of the process in order to reap some sort of profit in the you know at the end of the line here. You're, you're right. And if you go back to the computing world, um, sure, if you were BlackBerry or Apple or Android, you know, there is an attempt by companies to try and lock people in. Um, mm. But at the same time, you know, if you look at what the web has done in, in various protocols, um, you can still have very proprietary environments that interoperate with others. And this is... Um, you know, you see that in web servers all of the time, whether you're on Amazon Web Services or Google Cloud or Azure or what, what have you, you know, the protocols of how services, how machines talk to machines has been standardized in that world. And you see a lot of efforts in our world in manufacturing with, you know, OPC UA and Hermes and, you know, all of the different protocols. There's movements to go in that direction, and that can help with some of this. But I think this idea that everyone has to talk the official standard protocols and that you're going to get standards, you know, the beautiful thing about standards is there's so many of them and no one's going to agree on them and, and every company wants the standard to be their own. So instead of trying to fix human nature and try and get to this utopian world where there's this universal standard, how did, how did the software world deal with this? And they did it through drivers, which is encapsulation. So let's come back to this mouse again. This is a Logitech mouse. It's working with Microsoft Windows and it works with a Mac. Same mouse. Now, the protocol of how the mouse movements and the button presses and all that stuff, the protocol of how it gets from here through the USB and into the machine and, and the language that the Logitech mouse speaks, which, by the way, it has non-standard buttons on it. It has its own protocol. How does that get into Microsoft Windows or into Mac and work? And it is still proprietary. It isn't a standard communications protocol, but it's been encapsulated into a device driver. And Microsoft Word or PowerPoint doesn't really care which mouse it is. It just needs certain types of events and communication, and it works. And why can't we use the same kind of analogy in the manufacturing world? I don't need to have 100% standardization of everything. What I need is encapsulation of differences. So again, if I come back to a goal-centered language, if I can define a language which says, I want to pick the screw up from here, and my target is to put it in that hole over there, do I really care in that recipe that I just said, that procedural declarative goal-oriented language, do I care if it's a four-axis robot or a six-axis robot? Because if I, if I tell the robot what I want it to do in terms of a goal, instead of a, uh, move this joint you know, W to this number of degrees, and instead I give the goal, then device drivers and lower-level encapsulation can do the translation. And I can now what I get is reuse because if I've defined a recipe at a high level, 
that can do this operation of putting screws in for this product. When I come out with a similar product, I should be able to reuse a lot of this, even if I can't reuse that encapsulated difference. It just minimizes the work. Let's take it to people, back to people again for a while, because we, we talked about DevOps, and DevOps is essentially developers and operations people talking together and building a joint process in a different way, and that's what happened in the cloud industry. Uh, there is a similar issue happening, it seems, in manufacturing between IT and ops, uh, because they historically, even in manufacturing where there was IT, if there was IT, it, it was sort of the IT department dictates and and then ops sort of just uh, kind of, I guess, deals with it and has other concerns and sort of is waiting for whatever system they have to work with. That seems to kind of be one, one dynamic. But if you think of it from like a plant manager point of view, um, w- what does a plant manager have to do to either stay ahead of these trends or start implementing the kind of industry 4.0 that that you have been describing here like who are the actors that can actually can actually make a difference in terms of how an individual factory makes use of these tools or or indeed how how the entire sort of industry shifts what who are we waiting for to make this happen faster to make it faster, I, I would say we're not waiting for anybody. I think we get analysis paralysis and we look at Industry 4.0 because it has big implications against every against every task, everything from you know design for manufacturing to how you program your robots to how you maintain them. And we haven't even talked about IoT and all the rich data that you get out of manufacturing and how we're going to use that. So you look at all that workflow. There's so much to change. There's so much opportunity. It's very easy to just throw your hands up and go back to the old way. So I think the first thing is, um, it's like any kind of innovation. Um, don't invent, innovate. You know, And what is innovation? It's, it's taking other people's inventions and figuring out how to get business value out of them. And it's not an all or nothing thing. You don't need to take an entire line and automate every aspect of that line. You can start small and run an experiment that's cheap. This is There's another book that's a favorite book of mine from the software industry. It's called The Lean Startup. And the whole premise of The Lean Startup is that when you're trying to innovate, the most important thing to do is to run as many experiments, many inexpensive, cheap, safe experiments that you can. And you know, to effectively find a way to take risks cheaply so that if an experiment fails, it hasn't really been a failure. It's given you something, which is education. Um, And so you can do that in a factory. Like, why not take part of your line and automate, you know, the labeling and the screwing phases of it and keep everything else the way you have it today and learn how to bring in industry 4.0 techniques into that. Then maybe if you want to use some IoT, and see what your first piece, uh, you know, your FPY is, your OEEs, you know, your various types of metrics, you know, just start with some basics and then grow from there. But um, I would caution against um, incrementalism. And I think this is another problem I see in the manufacturing industry, um, especially in contract manufacturing companies, is that the product that you're offering, this ability to put things together is the same as everybody else. And you're using the same kind of equipment and you have the same kind of humans uh, with the same kind of training. And so I always ask people, what is your strategic difference from your competitor? 
how are you going to be different? Because if you're not different, if you're a commodity, it's a race to the bottom on price. You know, you know everyone assumes quality or they won't use you. So what are you really doing different? So I think you want to do these experiments and learn how to innovate cheaply. But at the same time, um, you know, this is what I like about SpaceX is they had a big, freaking, huge, audacious goal. And I'm, not everyone knows what SpaceX's real goal is, but it's to colonize Mars. Um, and you know this. Yeah. And so it's, uh, it's to colonize Mars. If you go into their, you know, reception, you know, it, there's a picture of Mars there. That's what you see. You know, everyone in that company understands what they're really trying to do. And we in the press, you know, we read the newspaper and we see, oh, they're going to give me nice Wi-Fi in a r remote area and they're going to put my communication satellite up and they're going to do this, that and the other. But what they're really trying to do is colonize Mars. They want their, they want to be the, have a backup for humanity. So they started with a big audacious goal and they worked backwards. So if we start with this big industry 4.0 goal of designing for flexibility, um, having code reuse, not design everything for just one project, but for all future projects, having our hardware be reusable so we can depreciate it, not just on this project, but all projects. And you get into this virtual, virtuous uh, feedback cycle where when you have a version control system that's keeping track of all recipes you've done for putting screws in or labels on or glue or soldering or whatever the process steps are, and you start building these libraries that you can reuse, then it becomes cheaper to do the next project, which means you can reinvest in more of these process steps, more of this automation of automation. You have version control and how do we do uh, sign-offs and, and design reviews and, and so on. It's everything that we do in the software industry. None of these are new concepts. We just have to implement them here. Um, and that's what I would do. Start with a big audacious goal in mind and then find the cheapest way to test your assumption that, that this is the correct path. And then, Brian, if, if we do that, what can be achieved? Because, you know, it's, it's kind of a truism these days and has been for a while that, you know, manufacturing is difficult, it moves slowly. Yes, we are trying to innovate, but it's going to always be slower than these easy guys in software who sit, you know, in a garage and, and invent software companies and they have an easy time because, yeah, I mean, sure, you, you're doing a brainiac kind of a challenge and you're solving something, you know, no one's diminishing that. But sure, you, you'd say, well, hardware is different because there are all these physical limitations. Are you, are you saying that by automating automation, if we're sort of stepping into more like a futurist reference, what, what, what is... What is already being accomplished, sort of like e even just medium term, like next two, three, four years? And, and then if we look at uh, longer term, like seven to 10 or, or even long, longer than that, when you play the, the book, the playbook forward on automating automation, wh where do you end up? Do, I mean, do you end up colonizing Mars? Are there other interesting things that we're not even looking at that's going to be possible now through this? I mean, is it possible to think of manufacturing 10 years from now as an industry that innovates at the speed of what we see software innovating now? I mean, is that crazy to think? I don't think it's crazy to think at all. And, and I would go back and I um, will call BS on this thing that manufacturing is different or harder. Um, when I go into a factory, I see exactly what I saw in the software industry 20 years ago, 10 years ago. Lots of keyboard screens and mice, lots of equipment from different manufacturers, none of them made to be uh, under programmatic control, all of them 
with dials that humans are supposed to push. If you went into a data center 20 years ago, you would see tons of keyboard screens and mice. You would see a network engineer plugging into their Cisco router, setting up the route tables, okay, manually logging in. If you go into data centers today, there are no keyboard screens and mice in them. And the other thing is, let's talk about just the number of manufacturers. In a data center, you've got um, water pumps, you have power management systems, humidity control systems, CPUs, GPUs, FPGAs, uh, networking gear, all of these from different companies. None of them had uh, APIs or protocols or were meant to be automated. Um, no different from manufacturing. I don't see any difference between a data center, which is manufacturing bits, and a physical manufacturing center making atoms. I see them as the same. The difference is, and that's why 20 years ago, you know, AutoCAD and Photoshop shipped every four years, just like the Toyota Camry, because it was the same problem. What changed is, and let's ask the question, do you know how often um, Facebook makes a production level change to their product? you know, that affects users. Production level, not a test that they're doing in some little test thing. You have any idea how many changes they make? I don't know, every week? They make 1,500 changes every single day. How often does their site go down? Can any human, think of all the services from their, you know, instant messaging to video conferencing, to think of all the services that they have. And you've never seen that thing go down maybe once a year, have a, have a bug on one section of the site. And they're making 1,500. If you change the Toyota Camry 1,500 design changes a day and try to get that into manufacturing, what would your quality be? Now, what cost do they do it at? The reason why AutoCAD and Photoshop and these things used to ship every you know, four years back then was because the testing processes were manual. And because the deployment processes were manual and any change you made was so expensive and so risky. And this is what I see in factories today. We make millions of identical things. We, we can only afford to use automation when we're going to make a million of something. And what if you want to make a small number of something? Our systems aren't flexible enough to do that. And so what you need to do, and that's what you know, companies like ours are doing, we're trying to overspend in this R&D of making systems that make it easy to make changes. Because you only have to do that once. It does take a lot of capital. It does take a lot of engineering to simplify these things and automate these things. Automation is hard and it's expensive. The, the, but the thing is, is you get to reap the rewards for all future projects. Well, I wanted to challenge that a little bit. And I think you have challenged it in a, you know, also in previous discussions with me when it comes to like, it used to be that only big companies could produce value in, in many industries. And, and now you're sort of going back on it a little bit in the sense that this seems to be an industry where there's both going on. Like in, there are some major investments that do need to be made because yes. there's a certain, inflexibility that has been built up, I guess. And, and now I, I'm, I'm sort of making up the story here. You can disagree with it. But, you know, over time we have created all these inefficiencies and in order to sort of break through that, you, you sort of kind of have to invest with, with some scale to it. But on the other hand, I guess the software industry is also proof that certainly for a decade or two now, a bunch of startups have sort of come out of nowhere, although, you know, no one really does. But, they have sort of come out of universities, to be honest, right, uh, with clever things and have really made a big difference. How do you see that in manufacturing? Is it possible over time to 
come out of nowhere, whatever that really means, but you know, to come with some clever thing that really changes everything? Or is it, even though it's fast change, it still have to be you know, of a certain scale? I think you can. I think it's highly analogous. I mean, software did take 20 years to get from, you know, the, the windows every four years to, to 1500 changes a day at Facebook. It took it a long time. And it wasn't one invention that made that happen. You had source code control systems and languages and environments and debuggers. And so I think that's what we're talking about here. We don't, it's not a, zero or one. It's not an off on. It's There's a whole level of gray in between there. And I think that's the interesting part of Industry 4.0 to look at is start with that end in mind and how do we work backwards. So what could we do in manufacturing to make this better? Well, let's take uh, computer vision. You know, people spend a lot of time trying to get the right coordinates to get those screws to go in the hole. And there are companies that have done digital twins and simulation, but they generally don't work because the real screwdriver is a millimeter longer than it was in the simulation and you have to do everything over twice. So the auto industry uses a lot of simulation and other industries tend not to. They can't afford to. Um, but when you bring computer vision in, it's getting better. You know, There's a lot of vision stuff that's been around for decades. It's been 2D. You've got all the self-driving car. You've got machine learning. You've got computer vision, which is going through a renaissance. There's more happened in the last three years than in the last 30 years. And so these things are coming to bear. So now all of a sudden, a problem that was too, ex you could have solved it, but it was too expensive and too slow. Now it's not. That's not true anymore. So I think people have been in this industry for 20 years. I haven't been. But what I see is things that have been hard problems for a long time. If you just borrow some of these techniques from some other industries and say, you know, some of these problems have actually been solved now. They, they weren't three years ago, but they are now. Machine learning is pretty amazing. And one of the things I'll hear with uh, machine learning, by the way, is that machine learning is great. If you give a machine learning system a lot of data, a lot of examples that this is a good part and this is a bad part, and I label what's good versus what's bad, I could have a machine do inspection for me, for example. right? And inspection in a lot of plants is about 20% of the labor is inspecting the work of the other labor. And so if I can you know, use computer vision to do that, that would be, that would be really a big deal. You know, 20% savings would be pretty big. Um, the problem with machine learning is it needs a, a million examples of something before it really learns how to do what the human can learn in a few minutes, right? And so on the last day of production of this mouse, it's ready to take over. And how do you make it take over on the first day of production? Uh, and, and where there's no data to train the machine learning system with. And this is where, again, I think if you look at other industries, look at computer graphics. We can do what is called synthetic training data, where you take CAD files of this mouse. Um, and if you think of all the special effects you've seen in the movies, when you see Avatar and Iron Man and you know spaceships, um, they all look real. They all have shadows and glint and glare. And you, know, uh, you can have computer graphics technology apply to CAD files, create synthetic images for synthetic robots, and do synthetic machine learning training to do inspections. So you can create synthetic scratches and train these things. So these are the kinds of concepts where, again, if you look at other industries and you bring it here, things that seem impossible really are possible now. I wanted to ask you one more question, which is more to this point of a lot of these things seem fairly complicated, yet we are dealing with, specifically in manufacturing, a very different workforce, at least 
than the typical soft in, software industry, and certainly with, than other industries, in the sense that it's a big, traditionally a very big workforce, right? It's a big part of the economy, and it's been universally recognized by many, many people that uh, reskilling is going to be a, a massive challenge going forward. What is your answer to what kinds of skills are needed in this new world of automating automation that we've just been speaking about for the last uh, bit uh, of time? H how are we going to do that? And, and if you are an individual who's either in this industry already or, or young talents or contemplating going into this new manufacturing environment, which by the way, I think both of us would recommend it's actually going to, it's heating up. It's an interesting place to be. It's not just a joke. It's not, we're not making this up. There's like advanced technologies that you can experience, but how do you, how can you as an individual gain those skills and how can we as a society facilitate, I don't know what it's going to take, but essentially we need a billion people who are, who are in this sector to essentially continuously be up to date. How is that going to happen? I think it happens at three levels. Let's take that ATM machine. It's a robot after all, right? And there's three levels. There's the person who wrote all the cloud software and security software and all the operating system in the ATM machine. There's the person that comes and services the ATM machine and looks at the debugging code and finds out that there's a motor that's jammed and it needs lubricant and that's why it's not working today. And then there's the person who uses the ATM machine. And they're at three levels, and you need all three, and all three are growth opportunities. So, you know, quite frankly, not everyone is going to do the most sophisticated writing the device drivers that encapsulates the complex. The complexity doesn't go away. If anything, we have more complexity in the world, not less. So, how do we encapsulate the complexity in a way that uh, yes, there need to be these experts that are even more sophisticated than the most sophisticated people we have today, and we have to train those people up, and they need to go to university, and they need to learn this. Then you have this middle level, which um, are the people that, that need to not author these systems, but configure them, integrate them, and those system integrators aren't going to go away. I think the analogy there back, if you think of in my old world, you know, there used to be network engineers who I told you would program a switch. Today, when you have a million network switches at a Google data center, you can't do it that way anymore. So they write a script. And so all of my network engineers had to learn how to write Python. They had to learn a programming language in order to do their job. And, you know, a bunch of them uh, were really excited about that. Some were begrudging and some didn't want to. And, you know, there was about a third, a third, and a third. So a third were a little bit left behind, and that's a real concern. But, um, you know, that is a reskilling problem, and not everyone wants to be reskilled. Um, but then there's that third level, which is the user of the ATM machine. And I think that's where bringing in really good user design and designing this thing like an iPhone rather than for a manufacturing industry, you know, this is what we've seen in the software industry. The amount of software that you have to do today, to, to if you have a new uh, idea. I don't know. You've got a guitar in the background. Let's say you wanted to make some software uh, to teach people how to play the guitar. In the old days, you would have to learn how to do your own backups. You would have to learn how to manage a database and do sharding and load balancing and all of this technology. Today, in this public cloud, infrastructure as a service or cloud as a service, 
you just write the actual logic you care about, the business rules of how what your app does, and all of that other stuff is done by somebody else. And that's what platforms do. So I see the same thing um, in that system integrator level. There's a whole continuum there of sophistication and encapsulation of complexity. And then finally, when you get to the end user, if we have this great user interface, which is declarative, um, it allows people who weren't even part of the process, the end customer, the end OEM who used to have to outsource to these uh, integrators all the time, they now have something they can tweak, that they can turn, they can change their product a little bit. I get a new supplier and the dimensions are a little different and I can just tweak the recipe. I don't need to understand all the device protocols and stuff, but I can adapt to this new part. And that is what is going to make manufacturing cheaper. It's also the interesting thing about robotics is it allows onshoring. You know, we've sp the last major uh, innovation in manufacturing was globalization, you know, offshoring all this stuff. Uh, but we've run out of, you know, countries to offshore to, you know, we're not making any new countries and the standard of living has increased. Um, I did some research a while ago. I found out that there's about 400,000 people that join the middle class every day because globalization has brought so much money to these new areas that the, the middle class is rising and then they're consuming more, you know, they want their dishwashers and stuff. And so it's this virtuous cycle and those people don't want to go into manufacturing anymore. So we, we have this crisis of tariffs and COVID and broken supply chains and you've got container ships that are all bottlenecked and you know all this offshoring stuff seemed like a great idea then but now we're seeing customers that want to build things closer to home and if you have a system that is more self-service that has a user interface that's easy to use um, you can afford to do that and it doesn't cost any more to run a robot in Germany than it does in you know China it's the same cost to run the robot um, and that is an interesting insight as, as we move forward. I agree indeed. There, there hasn't just been one interesting insight. It's been a, a, a string of them from you, Brian. I, I, I thank you so much. This has been uh, very insightful. Thanks a lot. Sure, sure thing. Good talking to you, Taran. You have just listened to episode 29 of the Augmented Podcast with hosts Trunar Unheim. The topic was the automated microfactory. Our guest was Brian Matthews, CTO of Bright Machines. In this conversation, we talked about increasing the speed, scalability, and flexibility of manufacturing using an intelligent, software-driven approach. Can discrete manufacturing, that is the production of distinct items such as electronics, automobiles, furniture, toys, smartphones, and airplanes, now achieve the same efficiencies that we have seen in the software world? What does the next decade look like? My takeaway is that as fully software-enabled platforms take hold, the automation of discrete manufacturing will change exponentially in the years ahead. This has been a long year in the coming, and the impact is almost impossible to fathom. Factory-level automation is one thing, however, the onset of relatively mobile microfactories and the ability to remotely update, tweak, and even radically improve physical things that already left the initial production facility will not only change timelines, but might alter the very notion of what a product is. Given that the sci-fi that Brian and I both love is coming near a reality, good luck to sci-fi writers trying to write about the next century's innovations. 
that is going to take some extra creativity. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 42, Business Beyond Buzzwords, episode 21, The Future of Digital in Manufacturing, or episode 27, Industry 4.0 Tools. Augmented, industrial conversations that matter.